Lord Jesus, it's amazing how many times we think our way is the best way. And we have a plan, and we have a schedule, we have an agenda, and we bring it to you, and we expect you to jump through the hoops that we've set out. But God, it is your way that we desire. It is your heart, it is your knowledge, it is your understanding, it is your grace and compassion, your truth, your justice, your holiness that we desperately need. And so God, as we study your word together, as we continue our worship of you in the study of your word, we pray that you would help us to set aside the desire we might have for our way and that you would replace that selfish desire with a selfless desire, a desire to have your way in us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you meet us, that you draw us, that you heal us, that you transform us. And we pray for you to move in this place, that you would speak to each heart, that you would open eyes and ears and hearts. God, that we would hear your voice in the moments ahead. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, church. We are continuing in our study in the book of John. I, uh, I hope that you have with you a copy of the Gospel of John. We were distributing those when we began this series, and we continue to distribute them. So if you've not gotten a copy of the Gospel of John, we'd love to put one of those in your hands today. In fact, you can grab one in the lobby on your way out or at our connections counter across the way. You might say, well, why do I need a, a copy of the Gospel of John? I have a whole Bible that's got all the books in it. I'm perfectly fine. The nice thing about these uh, Gospels of John that we purchased for you is that they have journaling pages on, on every opposite page. And so there's a great place to sort of record the things that God says to you through the text. And as a family in this season, we've sort of committed to be journaling how God is speaking to us and then sort of sharing those reflections with one another. So I'm only saying that for the sake of saying if you didn't get one of those yet, we still have some. We want to make sure everybody has one. We're finishing here in the end of John chapter 4. And if you were with us last week, we saw uh, sort of the conclusion of one of the most famous stories in the Gospel of John, the story of Jesus with the woman at the well. Remember, he meets her at the well. He's in uh, a a town of Samaria. He meets her. He has this great, beautiful conversation drawing her to her deeper spiritual need than even the, the physical need that she has for water. And then she leaves that interaction with him, as we saw last week, and she goes back to the city and she says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. And there is a spectacular revival in the Samaritan town. In fact, when we look at the beginning of John chapter 4 and we see that it says Jesus needed to go through Samaria when we see the conclusion of that piece of the story, we understand why he needed to go there. Because God moved in a miraculous way at the end of the text we studied last week, the people of that Samaritan town invited this Jewish rabbi to stick around. They said, hey, would you stay with us for a few days? He concedes to their request and he stays with them for a while and it's incredible. It says that the people believed in his word, right? They believed in what Jesus had said. And for all intents and purposes, that's a pretty comfortable place to do ministry at that point, right? When you're in a spot where people believe in you and there are more and more believing and they're listening to what you have to say, despite the fact that he's in a Samaritan town, this is a pretty good place to do ministry. And yet when we pick it up today in verse 43 of chapter 4, it says that Jesus leaves that comfortable place. We're going to talk about that in a second. But before we get further in, I actually want to sort of back up entirely, and I want to back up all the way to a study we did a year ago in the book of Hebrews, right? In the book of Hebrews, we saw again and again the author, the writer to the book of Hebrews saying to his audience and to us, fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't lose sight of Jesus. Jesus is your anchor. Jesus is your high priest. Jesus is superior in every other, in every way to anything else you could put your faith in. Fix your eyes on him. I want to remind you, and we'll put it on the screens, of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. 
In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, this is a text, by the way, that we use as our guideline for the way we do discipleship in this church. It says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I love this in verse two where it says, let's look to Jesus who is both the founder and the perfecter, or in your translation it might say, the author and the finisher. He's both the beginning and the end of our faith. That it is part of who Jesus is to take whatever spark of faith we have and to improve upon it, to grow it and to cultivate it and to stretch it and mold it. That he is not only the origin of our faith, he's also the one who is perfecting that faith in us. The text we'll see here at the end of John chapter 4 is a a perfect example of Jesus doing precisely what the writer of the Hebrews tells us that Jesus does. Authoring and perfecting faith. Beginning and ending faith. We see this beautiful progression at the end of John chapter 4. And I don't want you to miss the bigger picture. Because it isn't just a story of a man coming to Jesus for help. It's a picture of Jesus hearing the man's specific request and looking through the man's specific request to a much greater need. Like we've seen Jesus do in almost every page of the Gospel of John so far, right? We've seen him look through the need for wine at the wedding at Cana to the greater spiritual needs of the people there. We've seen him look through the request for information of Nicodemus to the greater spiritual need of that Pharisee. We've seen him look through the physical needs of the woman coming to get water at the well to her greater spiritual need. And again we see Jesus molding and shaping, perfecting the faith of someone who at the outside of the story has just a tiny little spark of faith, if you can even call it that. But before we get to this man's story, go back to John chapter 4, because there's some interesting stuff at the beginning of this section. It says in verse 43... After the two days, he departed for Galilee. Okay, so he was in Sychar. He's with the Samaritans. They have this great revival, right? It's, very, it's a really kind of a fun season for him, these people all believing in his word. It says, after two days, he departed for Galilee. That's his home area, right? The area of Nazareth and, you know, Capernaum. and All these cities we're going to see right here, um, in, including... Um, where he winds up here in Cana. It says, After two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. That's kind of a weird section of verses, and I want to talk about it for a second. It says, After two days he left this comfortable place, and he went back to Galilee, for he himself had prophesied that a prophet is not welcome in his hometown. Then it says he gets to his home area in Galilee and the people all welcome him, right? So you kind of go, what? What is that parenthetical statement supposed to be telling us? If the people don't welcome him there, well, why does it say they welcomed him? And if the people are not going to be welcoming to him there, why would he go there? Why wouldn't he stay in a place like Samaria where they clearly have all been welcoming him? This is an important note, and you don't want to miss it. The author is revealing to us something profound about the ministry of Jesus and also profound about the ministry of Jesus' disciples who will follow him. It says, after two comfortable days of ministry in Samaria, essentially, verse 44, Jesus testified a prophet had no honor in his own hometown, so he goes back to his hometown. Why? He leaves a place of comfort and goes to a place of dishonor. 
He leaves a place where the people are believing in his word for the right reasons, and he goes to a place where they will not recognize who he is, and their faith at this point is only in his miracles. It says he goes back to the region of Galilee, and they all welcomed him, but why did they welcome him? They welcomed him because they had heard about his miracles, or they'd seen his miracles, They'd seen the things that he'd done in Jerusalem. They certainly had heard the story or witnessed the water being turned to wine at Cana, which is where he goes back to. So he goes back to a place that will, by its very nature, be more difficult. Jesus leaves Samaria and goes to Galilee, a place where he has no honor among his own people, because there's a greater need for him there. Does that make sense? Because it is a place of dishonor, he goes from a place of comfort into a place of dishonor. And you might go... That's not, that's not what I would do. I would stay put, man. If the people in Samaria are welcoming me and they're all believing and they're just great revival, why not stay there? It's because Jesus is moving to a place of greater need. He's moving to a place where correction is necessary. And that shouldn't surprise us because we see that all throughout the scriptures. We see God constantly calling his people to move from a place of comfort to a place of discomfort, right? Isn't that what he does with Abraham? When he says, I want you to leave your homeland and your people and I want you to go to a place I'm gonna show you? Isn't that what he says to Moses when he says, I want you to leave Midian, a place where you're raising some sheep and everything seems comfortable. You got a nice little family, a nice little setup here and I want you to go to Egypt and I want you to engage with the Pharaoh there. Isn't that what he says to David when he calls this young boy to leave his home and go into battle against Goliath? Isn't that what he says to Daniel when the people are uprooted from their homes and taken into captivity? No, the story of Scripture is a constant story of God moving people out of comfortability into dishonor, out of a comfortable place into a place of difficulty. And so the reason why this is important, number one, I want you to see that that's the way Jesus moves as well. Jesus moves from a comfortable place to a place where he has no honor because there is a great need there. And therefore then in our lives, we should not be surprised when God knocks on the door of our hearts and says, I want you to move from the comfortable spot you're in and go to a place that is uncomfortable for you because there's a greater need there. We should not be surprised when he calls us to greater places, even though they are harder places. I think many people come to Jesus or they come to faith with the hope that he's going to make your life easier and more comfortable and more relaxed. That as you start following Jesus, it's just going to get more and more peaceful. But that's not the trajectory we see of Jesus himself, who is moving increasingly towards the cross, the very incarnation itself. God coming to earth in flesh is a movement away from comfort and into discomfort for the greater needs of people. You see that? And so he calls each and every one of us. It says, after two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. They're interested in him for his miracles. They're interested in him for his signs and wonders. And he'll speak to that in just a second. Look at verse 46. It says, So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Jesus goes back to Cana. This is the place where he performed his first miracle in the Gospel of John. He goes back to Cana. Cana, by the way, is about 20 miles from Capernaum. Capernaum literally sits on the Sea of Galilee, so it would have been a hike up into the hills, right? 20 miles away, closer to Nazareth. This official hears word that Jesus is going to be in Cana, where he performed this other miracle. And this official, by the way... um, 
when it says official or nobleman, it's a little bit, there's a sort of a question about what kind of a nobleman he was. The Jews themselves didn't have official noblemen. It's likely that he was official, an official in the, in the court of Herod Antipas, who was kind of a, a quarter of a king appointed by the Roman government. But there's a lot of speculation as to what kind of official he is. Regardless of what government he serves with or what kind of official he was, we know that a man who is an official is a guy who's used to being obeyed. He's a man who's used to having his expectations met. He's used to having the things that he asks complied with, right? He's a man who would have had decent access to medical attention, whatever was available at the time. He would have had decent access to the right kind of advisors, right? He would have had decent access to whatever sort of help was available in this time period for his son, and yet none of those things had prevailed upon the health of his son, and his son continued to decline. So we see this official who was used to getting his way, was used to having things go the way he liked, and he hears that Jesus is gonna be in Cana, and that, Cana had, uh, that Jesus had done the miraculous, and so he makes the some 20-mile journey to Cana to approach the Lord Jesus and ask him, he's got this plan in mind, ask him to come down and heal his son. Come and heal my son who's at the very point of death. I love the fact that the reputation of Jesus is of someone who can help. That the very reputation of Jesus is of someone who can make a difference in the lives of those who are sick. I wonder if our culture today, in the world in which we live, still perceives Jesus that way. Do they still perceive Jesus as someone who will give assistance, who will bring his power to bear for the sick and the hurting and the lost? Or do they perceive Jesus simply as a judge? Do they perceive Jesus simply, some, some of them, as a fiction? Do they perceive Jesus as someone who just wants to hurl the heavenly lightning bolts at them? I like the fact that in this case, this leader, this, this Jewish official, or Gentile official, depending on how you read it, was humbled and powerless. Have you ever been humbled and powerless in your life? Have you ever felt like you didn't know what you were gonna do or where to turn? That there was a need in your life that you tried everything and you could not fix? It's frustrating, especially when you're used to fixing things, right? Especially when you're used to being the one with the answers, when you're used to being the one who solves the problems, and when that particular need that you can't solve is related to a loved one, a child no less, that's a brutal feeling. This is a man who is gutted and humbled and broken and he's, he's turned everywhere else and now he turns to Jesus because he's heard things on the street about what Jesus can do. It's a good reminder to us that when we see a hint of God, when we see a hint of God, it's a good idea to move toward him. Have you heard that before? I think Jeff Lilly said that about a month ago, right? When we see a hint of God, we should move toward him. How often in our lives are we looking for answers? Are we trying to find solutions? And we're turning in all the wrong directions. This official has what I would call crisis faith. Crisis faith, you know what I'm talking about? And sometimes we look down on crisis faith. We go, oh, these people are only turning to God because they've been diagnosed with cancer. Or they're only turning to God because they lost their job. Or they're only turning to God because their marriage is falling apart. Or they're only turning to God because their kids have gone off the deep end. Or they're only turning to God because they're being arrested and indicted or whatever. And we look at crisis faith sometimes with condescension. I want you to see in this case that Jesus doesn't judge the man for crisis faith. Is crisis faith the best kind of faith? No, it's not. But is it a faith that God can use? Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith? Can he use that little spark of crisis to grow something deeper? You bet he can. Let me tell you this this morning, church. If you're here this morning, if you stumbled into these doors in crisis, I'm so glad. Because my Jesus can meet you in the midst of that crisis. 
He can meet you in the midst of that crisis. Did you stumble in here wondering if the Jesus you'd heard about, the Jesus you see represented by the crosses on the signs out here, if that Jesus had an answer that maybe our culture doesn't have, the answer to that question is yes, he does. When you see a hint of God, move toward him and obey. But look at what Jesus says. It's kind of interesting. It says in verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Verse 48, so Jesus said to him, unless you've seen signs and wonders, you will not believe. It's a little harsh, right? It feels a little harsh. The man says, my son's dying. Will you come down with me to Capernaum and heal him? I've heard about you. I've turned everywhere else. Will you heal my son? And Jesus goes, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. It feels a, a little bit of, uh, like a little bit of a rebuke, doesn't it? It's important to note here that, that that statement that Jesus makes in verse 48 is not a singular statement. It's a plural statement. So in both cases in verse 48 where it says you, that's not a singular you. He's not just addressing this official. He's addressing everyone in the context, right? So here he is remarking about the very thing we talked about at the beginning, that Jesus comes to Galilee not because things would be easier in Galilee, but because they would be harder, he comes to Galilee not because he would be welcomed there, but because the people's faith there was so stunted by the fact that all they cared about were the miracles. This man comes and says, my son is at the point of death. Will you come with me to Capernaum, right? And Jesus looks at him and says, you, meaning the plurality of people gathered, all of you only care about signs and wonders. All you care about is signs and wonders, and you won't believe unless you see those things. But this isn't Jesus passing judgment. This is Jesus teaching. This isn't Jesus condemning the man because the very next thing we see Jesus do is perform a miracle, right? We see Jesus change this man's situation. Why? To perfect his faith, to finish his faith. He does look at the man and say, hey, this isn't the right kind of faith. You're only coming to me because you want to see signs and miracles, not just you, but this entire crowd. They heard about the wedding. They heard about the things that happened in Jerusalem, and they're only gathered here because they want to see something spectacular, Right? And so he states that. It's a teaching moment. But look at the man's persistence in this text. I like his persistence. Jesus takes this moment in 48 to say, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Verse 49, the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Come down before my child dies. He doesn't respond to what Jesus has said. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't say, you know what? That's not true. I believe in you. I believe that you're the Messiah. I believe that you're the Son of God. He doesn't try and defend it. He just goes, listen, I don't know about any of that. I don't know about why people believe or who they believe. To be honest with you, yeah, I'm here because I want to see a sign and wonder. My kid is dying. Did you hear me say that already? Please come down with me. Do you hear the desperation? Do you hear the centeredness of this man? He looks at Jesus and says, you may be right about us being only concerned with signs and wonders. I don't have time to think about that. All I can think about is my sick kid. There is a persistence, which the Bible in other places will tell us is important when we come to God. Persistence. He says, will you come down? Jesus says this in verse 50. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Go, your son will live. You know, sometimes we pray, God, I want you to do this, or God, I want you to do that. Sometimes we pray, God, come down to Capernaum. There's a great need in Capernaum. I want you to come to Capernaum. I got this all worked out. You come to Capernaum. My kid gets healed and everything is better. Come down. But a lot of times, you've probably experienced this, a lot of times, even though we're praying, Jesus, come down to Capernaum, Jesus goes, no, nah, 
I don't need to go to Capernaum or I'm not going. That's not part of my perfect will. That's not part of my plan. I see that it's your plan. I see that it's your agenda. I see that it's what you think you need in order for the situation to be restored. But you've misunderstood my power here, right? Does God answer his prayer? Does God answer his request? Absolutely. Does God do it in the way he expects? Absolutely not. We should learn from that, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we take that to heart and go, sometimes I'm coming to God and I'm saying, God, give me a new job, or God, restore this relationship, or God, fix this thing or that thing, or restore this or fix that. I got it all worked out. And God says, I see it. I understand the need even better than you do, and I am doing something about that, but I might not do it in the way you plan. You see, Jesus is trying to move this man from crisis faith to contemplative faith. From crisis faith to contemplative faith. He's trying to get the man to think, to sit up straight and go, what's actually going on here? Do I need Jesus to come down? Is the power of Jesus limited to his physical proximity? Is the power of Jesus limited to a 20-mile hike to Capernaum? Or does Jesus have the power to do what he wants to do, when he wants to do it, how he wants to do it, and am I okay with that? I think many times when we come to Jesus, we come to him wanting him to serve us, right? And for many of us, our prayer lives consist almost entirely of commands or actions that we would like God to perform. Do you come to the throne of the Almighty God with commands, with an expectation that he will serve you? Or do you come to the throne of the Almighty God prepared to serve him? It's a very different approach, right? Many of us get into religion in the first place because we want God to jump through our hoops, because we want to be able to sort of treat God the way the trainers treat Shamu at SeaWorld, right? That as long as he jumps through the hoop, then we'll give him a fish at the end or whatever, right? God, I'll be willing to put some money in the offering plate if you do this thing I asked. God, I'll be willing to be a Sunday school teacher if you do the thing that I've told you to do. God, I'll be willing to come to church three Sundays out of the month instead of two if you jump through the hoop. I got this whole little pouch of fish here, and if you want one of them, you better do what I say. That isn't who God is. We don't come to God with our demands. We don't come to God expecting him to serve us. And you shouldn't be frustrated when he doesn't serve you. Because the kingdom of God is a kingdom. It's not a democracy. It's not a co-op, right? The kingdom of God is a monarchy. And he is the king of the monarchy. Nobody comes to the king expecting the king to serve them. They come to the king ready to serve. And so should we. This man comes to Jesus and he says, come to Capernaum. Jesus says to him, go, your son will live. Or an even better translation is, your son lives, right? Your son lives, he's alive, go. And look at what happens next. It says, the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to the man, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went. Sometimes God solves it in a way that's different than our plan. And so you might ask, well, what's the point of my faith then? Does my faith make a difference at all? If I'm praying, does my faith even matter, right? If God's just gonna do whatever he wants to do, if it's about him doing what he wants to do and not about what I've asked him to do, what's the point of my faith? Listen, the point of what God is doing in all things is to glorify himself by creating and cultivating and perfecting faith in you. So here's, this is kind of a big overarching principle that's important to understand. Regardless of the outcome of your prayer, your faith to pray glorifies God. Does that make sense? Your faith to pray is what God is after in the whole, in the whole context, right? The boy lives or the boy dies, and I don't want to be cruel about this, but the boy lives or the boy dies, either way, the boy's going to die. Even in this story, he's healed, but eventually that same boy gets older, right? Or he gets run over by a donkey 20 years later. It doesn't tell us what happens to him, right? 
But sooner or later, this guy's body, this son who will live for a while, his, his body is still going to kick it. He's still going to go into the ground. Jesus isn't just focused on a temporal fix. He's focused on an eternal fix. Jesus looks through the temporal problem to the eternal solution. Does that make sense? And so we look at this sometimes and we go, well, why should I even bother praying? Why should I even bother having faith if God's not going to do what I tell him to do? If God's not going to answer it the way I want him to answer it? Listen, the point of what God is trying to perfect in you is the faith to pray. The faith to pray is what God is using to glorify himself regardless of the outcome of the prayer. Jesus looks at this man and he says, go, your son lives or your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. He took him at his word. The man took him at his word. You know what that reminds me of? The Samaritans. The Samaritans who heard his word and believed. Romans 10, verse 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. I think at the end of the Gospel of John, in John chapter 20, when Jesus sees Thomas after the resurrection, and Thomas sees the scars in his hands and the, the scar in his side, and he says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says this in John 20, 29. Jesus said to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There's sort of a common ideal. In fact, it's a, it's a pretty common phrase. We say, uh, seeing is believing, Right? Seeing is believing. Show it to me and I'll believe. Demonstrate it. Put on the miracle. Put on the show and I'll trust in it. But here's what we understand in this text, that with God, it goes the opposite way. Very seldom is it seeing is believing. Almost always it's believing is seeing. What's God aiming at? He's aiming at your faith. He's aiming at the transformation of your heart. He's aiming at your belief. The temporal circumstances you're in may change or they may not. You may get another job or you may not. The relationship might be restored or it might not. God's gonna answer that according to his will, but no matter how he answers the prayer, the point that God was always trying to cultivate in us, to perfect in us, is faith. He's the author and finisher of our faith. He's trying to cultivate faith in us. This man takes Jesus at his word and he believes. It says in Psalm 33, verses eight and nine, let the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Jesus provokes this man to do something he didn't want to do. This isn't the guy's plan. This is a man who's used to being obeyed. It's a man who's used to having his directions followed. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to come down. You go. You go. That's frustrating, isn't it, when God does that to us? We go, no, I've kind of laid it out how I need you to do something here. And God says, no, I'm going to do it my way. Stick with me. The man takes Jesus at his word and he goes down. Jesus has moved him from crisis faith to contemplative faith. And now look at this. Look at verse 51. It says, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. I like this interaction. Uh, when it says he was going down to Capernaum, that's a literal, that's a, like when you travel from Cana to Capernaum, you're literally moving to sea level because the Sea of Galilee is at sea level. So uh, you're, you're moving down. He's moving down back to Capernaum. His servants meet him. And they go, you're not gonna believe it, your son. You're not gonna believe what's happening to your son. He's getting better. And the man says, look at the way he phrases it. I love the way he phrases it. The man says to him, he asked them, verse 52, the hour when he began to get better. Right? The hour when he began to get better. When did he start getting better? And look at their answer. 
He says, when did, they, when did he start getting better? They said to him yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him, right? At the seventh hour, the man puts the pieces together. He goes, that's exactly when Jesus says, go, your son will live, right? It wasn't that he began to get better. It was that when Jesus said it, it was done. The fever left him at the seventh hour. And the man puts the pieces together and he goes, this Jesus is more than just a prophet. He's more than just a guy who can do some magic tricks at a wedding. Jesus said at the seventh hour, that's about 1 p.m., he said at the seventh hour, go, your son will live. And at that moment, the fever left him. And it says, he, he put the pieces together, right? And what happened? The father knew, verse 53, that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. He goes from crisis faith to contemplative faith to confirmed faith. Confirmed faith. Jesus confirms it with the details. And I'll be honest with you, uh, I, I have to confess and I said this to our teaching team when we were studying this text. I said, I'm a guy who tends to roll my eyes a little bit at details like this. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you're like that too. I tend to be a bit of a skeptic because I've seen human beings embellish the truth to make their story more dramatic. You know what I'm talking about? I've seen humans blow things out of proportion. I've talked to people and they go, oh, I was praying for my nephew Tyson and I was asking God to do a miracle and I went to Target to buy some chicken for dinner and the only chicken that was on sale was Tyson chicken, ooh, ooh, miracle. And I'm like, come on, right? Be serious, what are we talking about here? That's not God, you know, people are like, oh, I was driving and an angel kept me from going off the side of the road. I'm like, yeah, or the radio did, right? I tend to be very skeptical when people put embellishments in the story that feel supernatural or wonderful in the literal sense of the word, when there's wonder involved in the story. But that's a problem, and I'm confessing it to you. It's a problem for me to sort of want to round off the miraculous details from the works of God because he puts the miraculous details in there on purpose. Who am I to say that God didn't speak to the person praying for their nephew Tyson through a sale on Tyson chicken? All throughout the scripture, we see God not just deliver his people, but deliver his people in spectacular ways. Imagine trying to tell the story of the Exodus, Moses and his people moving from Egypt to the promised land, but rounding out all the miraculous details, saying, oh yeah, God pulled them out of Egypt and he took them to the promised land, end of story. No, that's not the end of the story. He parted the Red Sea. He ruined all of their enemies in the water when it folded back over them. He provided them manna. He provided them quail. He gave water from the rock. God did the miraculous again and again and again. And we shouldn't be afraid to declare the truth of the wonder of God in the stories as he confirms our faith. We live in a culture that would tempt us to round off the details because it seems more sensible, Right? It seems more sensible to take the supernatural out of it, to take the sense of wonder out of it. But God put the sense of wonder in it on purpose. And the sense of wonder provokes awe in the lives of other people. When we round off the miraculous, when we round it down to something that's just sort of commonplace, we not only do ourselves a disservice, we not only diminish the glory of God in the story, but we do a disservice to our friends and neighbors. The servants come and they say, was it the seventh hour? And he goes, whoa, whoa, what? The seventh hour? That's when Jesus said it. And I want you to notice here, it's not just confirmed faith, that because of the details of this story, it becomes contagious faith. Contagious faith. It doesn't just say the man believed. It says what? He and his household. The story travels. 
Because this isn't the man just saying, oh, you know what, I went to see that guy in Cana and he said my son would get better, and he did. Whether that's him or whether it's somebody else, whether it's just he happened to, you know, we gave him the right bath at the right time or he ate the right shrubs or who knows what. No, 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 he doesn't try and diminish it. He says, Jesus said it at the seventh hour and at the seventh hour he was healed. Praise be to Jesus. And it becomes crisis faith that Jesus pushed to contemplative faith that then was transformed by the power of God to confirmed faith and then became contagious faith. You see, I think we have to walk into every difficulty and every, and every awkward circumstance, every time that God is calling us to leave the comfort of Samaria and move back into Galilee where a prophet has no honor in his hometown, when he's calling us to move from the comfortable to the difficult for the greater good, I think we always have to ask, how does my approach to this bless the lives of the people around me? If I lean into this and trust God with it, who else might see and believe? I love Paul in Colossians chapter four, verse two, from prison says this, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We, as the disciples of Jesus, have to learn how to tell the stories well. We have to learn how to repeat the stories well, because in that confirmation of faith, we have the opportunity to pass faith to others. When they hear the stories of how God has moved in us, how God has responded to our prayers then their lives can be changed as well. Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith, and in this man, he perfects not only the faith of the man, but he perfects the faith of the others in his household as well. The man came seeking temporal healing for his son, but Jesus not only healed the boy, he produced belief in the heart of the man and his household. He came asking for one thing. Jesus gave him that thing, but it almost seems of little consequence in the end because what Jesus gave him ultimately was even greater than the answer to his request. He transformed the eternal. The boy in his household will still one day grow old and die or get kicked by the donkey or whatever. But as a member of this household who believed in the power of Christ, though his body may have perished, he lives eternally. His faith continued in the death and resurrection of Christ, right? You know, I think there's something beautiful in this text about moving from crisis faith to contagious faith. I think there's something beautiful about coming on behalf of those with great needs. We wanna, we wanna respond to the text in a, in a physical way this morning. I'm gonna invite Christina to come back to the stage. I'm gonna invite uh, some of our elders who are present in the service, some of our leaders. Um, if, you're a, if you're a leader in our church or you know, one of our staff, I'm gonna invite you to come down here. We've got this great space in the front. We don't use it very often. But I, w- I would guess that there are probably some of you sitting in the service today who have crisis in your life. And maybe it's your personal crisis, maybe it's a health thing, maybe it's a relational thing, maybe it's a vocational thing, but I would guess there may be some of you who are in crisis mode today. And I don't know how often we catch a hint of God moving and move toward him. I think, I think in our church we tend to be a little bit stoic. I think we tend to be a little bit reserved. I think we tend to like to stay put where we're at. I want to invite you this morning as we close the service 
to come. And maybe you're coming for, forward for prayer, uh, to, to receive prayer for your own needs, or maybe you're coming forward this morning to receive prayer on behalf of a nephew named Tyson, or a coworker named Julie. I don't know. And here's the thing too, maybe you're here this morning and you don't believe in Jesus. You don't believe in any of this stuff. Guess what? Neither did this man when he came to Jesus. Neither did this man when he came to Jesus. So you may be somebody who wandered in off the street today with great and deep hurts in your life. And I wonder if you wouldn't step out and be willing to let Jesus begin the process of authoring and perfecting your faith, pushing you along. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite everybody to stand to their feet. Everybody stand with me. And we're just going to create a space down here in the front. I'm going to invite any and all of you who want to receive prayer to just come forward. And, and I'm going to meet you down here. And we've got some leaders down here already. We're just going to have a time. We've got about 10 minutes before the service is done. I'm going to invite you to just come forward and let's pray together. If you need to receive prayer, you can tap one of these folks on the shoulder. If you see people coming forward to receive prayer, then let's circle around them. Anybody who wants to come and pray can. But we're going to finish our service this morning by responding, taking a step toward Jesus as he authors and perfects our faith. Come, and let's receive prayer together.